promised Messiah. And that brings us to a point of remembering. That, you know, that's what we do at Christmas. We remember. But um, we, when we look at the, the declaration of the promised Messiah, we'll see that this morning. I'll expand on that. It really should fill our souls about the sovereignty of God. That when he says something, he means something. He doesn't, he doesn't lie. He cannot lie. If he, for God to lie would defunct the position of him as God. It's impossible by his very nature for him to do that. Uh, next Sunday, we're going to have a, a, a look at the delivery of the promised Messiah. That's what we're going to have a little bit of thinking about. Again, taken out of Isaiah 7.14. And, and, and that really brings us to a place of rejoicing. So when we look at the delivery of the promised Messiah, we've started with the declaration of the promised Messiah. We remember, as the people of Israel would have done year after year, they'd have remembered back to the prophecies of old. We're going to touch on this. And then the Messiah came, and for some it was a time of rejoicing. And for us, it should be a time of rejoicing. The Messiah was born, the prophecies were fulfilled. And then on New Year's Day, we're going to come together and we're going to look at how we respond to the deity of the promised Messiah. So there's our three sections over the the next three weeks. Firstly, we're going to look at the declaration of the promised Messiah. That's a place of remembering. Then we're going to have a look at the delivery of the promised Messiah. That's a place of rejoicing. And then finally, we're going to have a look at the deity of the promised Messiah. And that is a place of responding. I like to alliterate. That's how I've been trained. Some people go very far with it. I, I can't go far with it, but it helps and it helps me get into my head what God's trying to show me and tell me. And hopefully we're going to see this. So we want to come to a place of remembering this Christmas season. We want to come to a place of rejoicing. And ultimately we want to come to a place of responding. Because if we do the first two without the other one, it's a waste of time. We may as well be a secular crew just talking about the story of Christmas. We have to respond to what we know. Our theology needs to be applied. It's worse for us that know and don't apply. So we have to get to that place of responding. And and I can think of no better day than to start the year thinking about how is this year going to be different from what went before. We can't do anything about the harvest before. We can't do anything about what's happened. But we can do something about what lies ahead. And we want to be thinking about that. But this morning, we want to remember the declaration of the promised Messiah. And of course, this brings us into the Christmas narrative, the nativity, and all the things that are going on in there. And and we know this, that the the events of Jesus' birth were not just random. All these things just didn't happen because God suddenly said, do you know what, let's just do it now. These were foretold before the foundation of the world. I want you to get that. That God knew what he would do before we ever saw what he did. That's how much he loves us. It's not based on the things that we've done in terms of earning his favour. It's simply God looking at us, knowing that we would fall, knowing that we fail, knowing that there was no way we could restore ourselves. God had to do something. That's the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So the events associated with the birth of, of Christ are not just random events. They are specific clinical events where God stepped into time and in doing so perfectly fulfilled all those prophecies that had went before that had declared the birth of the promised Messiah. Absolutely to a T. That's how amazing God is. One of the greatest evidences for the God of the Bible is prophecy. That's why it's so important. And I don't just mean prophecy of the first uh, event of Christ. I don't just mean prophecy of the birth. I mean prophecy of his return, his death, his ascension, everything, his kingdom, all prophecy is important. But the prophecy of the first birth, the incarnation, we can look at and we can see that God has fulfilled them literally to a T. And that tells us about the prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled, that God will fulfill them literally to a T. That what he has said will happen will happen. So we can look at the news a little bit and we can see these things going on. I don't know if you've seen this this week. If you've just been looking at the news, you'll have seen that Russia and Iran have entered into a defense partnership. You know that's in Scripture? You know that Scripture talks about that? These armies of the north that are going to attack Israel? It's prophecy being fulfilled before our very eyes. 300 years ago he said, no. Nobody's going to attack Israel. They don't exist. They do now. They do now. God's moving. God's moving. But all these prophecies were foretold. Turn to Matthew chapter number 1, verse 22. And we'll, we'll be in Matthew a little bit this morning. Matthew, as he records the genealogy of Christ, as he records the birth of Christ in Matthew chapter number 1. He says this in, in verse number 22. Remember, this is superintended by the Holy Spirit. God intended these words to be written. Not that Matthew was a human typewriter, but God moved him as he spoke through his personality. But exactly what God wanted to go in was in. And here's what Matthew says. Now all this was done, what? Speaking of the birth of Christ, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying, verse 23, Behold a child to be with child. What prophet was that? Isaiah. We've read it this morning. That's our verse. Isaiah 7, 14. That there would be this miraculous virgin birth. Miraculous. Supernatural. Not replicated in the natural world. It is a supernatural birth. It means that Jesus, when he was born into this earth, didn't inherit the sin nature of Adam, like every human being comes into this world, inherits the sin nature of Adam as it is passed down from generation to generation to generation. You can't break that. There's no other way for you to be born. I don't know how many babies are being born today, this very day. I don't know how many women are in labor now at the hospital in Stoke and how many babies are going to be born. Every one of them will be born a sinner in the likeness of the first Adam. There's no way of breaking that unless God does something supernatural, which is what he did with Mary at the birth of Christ. He did not have the sin nature of 
Adam. That means he was impeccable. He was perfect in his ways. He was sinless, truly sinless. The virgin birth is so important. And who Christ was and is, so important. And Matthew says these events are done so that the, the words of the prophet could be fulfilled. And that's our foundational verse. Just as foretold, Mary did indeed conceive, but again, as I've said, it was a miraculous uh, birth. What happened? Now, I have to remember that the prophecy we're talking about in Isaiah is written 700 years, roughly. 700 years before these events take place. 700 years. I mean, you have to just stop at that a little bit. Oh, this is just a book written by men. Come up with this. Behave. Behave yourself. 700 years between these prophecies. And this is just the start of it. I think there's almost 320 odd prophecies that are literally fulfilled by Christ in him coming to the earth, living on the earth, and going to Calvary's cross. That's miraculous by any stretch of imagination. Now, we have Christ's birth. This is what Matthew tells us there. He says these things are, are done to fulfill. And then uh, what happens after Christ's birth? The, the, the Magi arrive in Jerusalem. So um, Herod then responds to this. So I'm, I'm going through this a little bit quickly because I'm expecting that most of you know most of this. Even if you haven't been in church, you've seen it paraded in front of you in nativities and Christmas plays. I want to put, I'm going to put a little pin in that, I'm afraid. We were singing the first in the well, and I'm, I'm saying I'm going to have to scrap that or change that. Because that's not biblically accurate, what we were singing this morning. Now, it's not heresy, but, you know, this, this, get this concept that it was winter, uh, it's not biblical. It ain't in the Bible. It's not what the Bible says. More likely, and I, this is what I believe, I believe it's Passover time. I think Christ came in at Passover and he went out at Passover because God is a God of order. But anyway, that's another story. You go and speak to any Middle East shepherds and ask them what where, when they love to go out and shepherd the sheep. Is it winter? No. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. And especially these shepherds in charge of the shepherds for the, the, the Passover. That's, that's not when this happens at all. But we sing it, and this is tradition, but it's not right. One of the other traditions is the three... Let's say three. Oh, I nearly said three. The, the Magi that came, these kings of the, uh, that came, um, again, didn't come to the manger scene. Didn't come to the manger scene. So we have to be careful what I sing. But what we do know is they came to Jerusalem, first of all, in response to what was going on. And Herod then, obviously knowing... Old Testament scriptures, knowing prophecies, knowing what was going on, Matthew tells us, Matthew chapter 2, verse number 3, when Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born, where the anointed one should be born, literally where the Messiah should be born. So he knew about this. And he knew about the Messianic prophecies. He also, so he would have known, I want you to put this into Herod's thinking, he, he would have known Isaiah 7, the verse that we read this morning. And he would have known that there would be a promised Messiah, but he would also know 
that Isaiah prophesied not only that the virgin would give birth and the Messiah would come, but the Messiah would come and he would rule and he would reign and his kingdom would be forever. Now Herod was a man who was after power. Herod was a man that loved his position. Herod was a man that loved the things that came with the position he had. So when he hears about this going on, and he thinks about the prophecy, he remembers the declaration of the promised Messiah, and for him, it means an end to his rule, and an end to his kingdom. And guess what? He doesn't want it to end. He doesn't want it to end. So again, you know, we can see how much how a prophecy is important, positively and negatively, and how people respond uh, to it. And, you know, the prophecy again, Isaiah, but also this prophecy in Micah. Turn to Micah chapter 5 again, one of the famous prophecies. We're going to have a look at this. This is, this is an amazing uh, prophecy. Uh, Micah chapter 5, verse number 2. Again, written many, many years before these events play out in Bethlehem. We're going to have a look at this at the carol service because this is a, an amazing prophecy in so many details. But, Micah 5.2 says, But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come he forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old and from everlasting. Paraphrase that, what does it say? Bethlehem, the Messiah, is going to come forth from you. It's going to be born in Bethlehem. So again, you know, Herod's putting all this together. You know, he's not a happy bunny whatsoever. How does he respond to the declaration of the promised Messiah? Does he open his arms and say, Thank you, God. Praise be. Messiah has come. Your rule and your reign is coming. I rejoice and I respond. No, no, no. What does he do? Come on, church, you know this. How does he respond? What's his first course of action? Come on. What does Herod do? What's his response? Right. So he orders that there's a slaughter of children. Now what age? Two and under. Why bother with that if it's a baby? Hmm? Time has passed. Time has passed. But that's his response. He orders the slaughtering of the young boys of Bethlehem. But even in doing that, Herod led to the fulfillment of more prophecy. Turn to Jeremiah. Chapter number 31, verse 15. This is the amazing thing about the sovereignty of God. This is the amazing thing of our God, that, he, that, he, that he's behind every scene, and every scene he's behind, he moves. Yet at no point does he remove human choice in this. Herod always had a choice, but yet even in doing what he did, he was fulfilling prophecy. God stands above human thought and human thinking and human ways. His ways are higher than our ways. We cannot absolutely cannot determine that we can fully work out God and know exactly how he works. It is beyond us and above us. He is infinite. We are finite, simple human beings. God is so above us and beyond us. And he moves here 
Herod thinks he's doing his own will, and he is, but yet he's fulfilling prophecy. It's an amazing tension. Jeremiah 31, verse 15. Thus saith the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, bitter weeping. Rahel, weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. Then turn to Matthew chapter 2, verse 18. We'll tie this in. Well, we'll read verse 17, actually. It says, Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, In Ramah there was a voice heard, lamentation, weeping, great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be comforted, because they are not. So here, Matthew references. What's happening? Is prophecy unfolding. Prophecy is just history in advance. That's all it is. And it's unfolding. Now the original context of this prophecy had to do with mothers in Israel lamenting the deportation of their sons to Babylon. And these mothers were personified as Rachel, the mother in the days of the patriarchs, whose sons Joseph, Benjamin, had also been threatened with no more. Now Ramah was a town close to Jerusalem associated with Rachel's tomb. But the second fulfilling of this prophecy resulted in Herod's evil act. This took place uh, after Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Egypt. So again, this, this whole unfolding of, of these prophecies. So in prophecy, I want, I want to put this in here. It's a good time to just put this in, caveat this a little bit. That in prophecy, there, there's um, kind of sometimes what we call the twofold or threefold application. Number one, it can refer to immediate events that happen right there and right now, while at the same time having a longer-term uh, uh, application of a further uh, fulfilling of that prophecy that is yet to come. So you see this sometimes when you look into the Old Testament, that God speaks to the prophets and he speaks directly into a situation that Israel's speaking, but yet there's a clear pointing to something else that's coming along down the lines. And, and the prophecy of Jeremiah and Jeremiah 31 about this is, is, is that very thing, that it spoke to a situation that Israel was dealing with um, as they were taken into the captivity. But at the same time, under the inspiration of the, the Holy Ghost, Matthew records and says that this prophecy was fulfilled when Christ came and in his birth. So there's this twofold application of it. So Herod, you know, he puts these events into play, but yet through these events, he triggers other events that were prophetically foretold by the prophets of the Old Testament. Once again, speaking to the supernatural element in the Word of God and amongst the people of God. Because Joseph and Mary flee, they go to Egypt, and that's a fulfillment of prophecy. Turn to Hosea, chapter number 11. Keep your place in Matthew 2 as well, please. Hosea 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, and I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. Now again, thinking about this double application of prophecy. Israel delivered out of Egypt the exodus, but also this called out aspect, we're going to see that Matthew again tells us that that was prophecy speaking of, yes, what God did, but also what he was going to do when 
Messiah came. Matthew 2, verse 15. And was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. That's Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. So Matthew's reference in these prophecies, the final prophecy that's discussed by uh, Matthew to deal with the, the early days of his childhood. So God warned Joseph in a dream not to go back to Judea. So again, then he went to Nazareth and that's where Jesus uh, grew up. But again, verse 23, Matthew 2, what does it say? <clears throat> Excuse me. Matthew 2, verse 23. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled. So there's that term again, that it might be fulfilled. Which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now this, this whole Naz Nazarene thing is wonderful, wonderful to look at, it really is. Nazareth comes from the root word netzer, which means branch. And multiple prophets spoke of the Messiah as branch. So it's not, a, as I'm saying, it's not a coincidence. There's no randomness in this. This is the perfect moving of God. A God who is ordered. A God that says things and does them. A God that leaves prophecy so that people can remember that he is true to his word. People can remember and look and say, God will do it. God will do it. And then he leaves these little breadcrumbs for us. These little things, just, just for our benefit, to thrill our souls. God doesn't need to do this to prove that he's God. But he does these little things. And this concept of the branch is, 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 is beautiful. Turn to Isaiah chapter number 11. Like I said, there's multiple prophets here. And we'll go through them. Isaiah 11, verse number 1. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Jeremiah 23, verse number 5. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and justice in the earth. Jeremiah chapter number 33, verse number 15. In those days and at that time will I cause the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 8. Zechariah 3, verse 8. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, thou, and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondering at, for behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. Zechariah chapter number 6, verse 12. And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. And he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. So you've got these references to the branch. You have Jesus then growing up in the place where the root word Netzer means branch. There is a connection. This life of Christ was, was so amazing in all its things, in all its little details. And of course, Nazareth was, was, was looked upon uh, um, not in a good way. 
It's said that there used to be a, a barracks there, a soldier's barracks. And when you have soldiers and you have barracks, you have soldiers that like to entertain themselves at night. You get on going with this, don't you? Wasn't a good place in the association. Nathaniel said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Because that's what it was known as. A little bit of a den of iniquity town. But that was the declaration of the promised Messiah. That he was the branch associated with Nazareth. And of course we know that that branch would be rejected, would be despised. Again, the prophets tell of that. Turn to Isaiah 53. Famous verse. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. We know that the Messiah that came wasn't accepted. We know that. He was rejected. He was despised. But as we think about the promises, as we think about the declaration of the promised Messiah, what should it do for our thinking? This is what I want to get to. I want to get to application. Because it's good to look back and, you know, it is good to correct the Christmas narrative and make sure that, that we, are, we remember the reason for the season, but we understand what the Bible says about it. Because the Bible is the only source of absolute truth, pure truth. And that's, as a, as a Bible-believing Christian, that's where you've got to make your stand. I don't think there's, honestly, I don't think there's anywhere else to go, personally. Now, again, Claire says I'm autistic. Maybe I am, I don't know. But it's black and white to me. If God is God, then he's God. If he's not, he's not. What he isn't and what he can be, can't be is a mix between the two. Because if God is God, then he is sovereign over all. If God is God, then his word is his word. We can't mix and match. It's all or nothing. This is what Jesus talks about when he talks about the church of the last days in Laodicea. He says, you're neither hot, you're neither cold. What's he saying? I would prefer you're one or the other. Make your stand. That's what Elijah says, doesn't he? Mount Carmel. Hold ye not between two opinions. Literally, stagger not. That's what it means. Halt is one of these false friends in the KJV. For us, halt means stop, doesn't it? For a long time, I thought that, that's what it meant. Don't stop between two opinions. But it doesn't mean stop. The actual word in its original form means staggering. Don't limp on between two. Choose. And when we look at these prophecies and we look at how they were fulfilled and we can look back in history and see that they were fulfilled, that should bring us to a point that we come and we put ourselves before the Lord, we bow before him and say, Lord, we trust you. We trust you. We know you are true. Because we can look and we can see how you have proved your trueness. You've proved it. 
This is the thing about Christianity that so many gainsayers of Christianity or Christians don't get. That when we come to biblical Christianity, yes, it's faith, and it has to be an element of faith, but it's not blind, stupid faith. It's educated. It's reasoned. It's logical. And also, it's historical. So we can look back and we can see, God said these things many, many years before they ever happened, and they happened. These prophecies, as we remember the declaration of the promised Messiah, we take that and we compare that to everything else that's in the world that offers itself up as a religious system And we compare them and we say, categorically, there is nothing like biblical Christianity in the world today. Nothing. There's no prophecies about the birth of Muhammad. None. No prophecies about the birth of Joseph Smith. No prophecies about Charles Taylor Russell and the Jehovah's Witnesses. No prophecies about the, the Buddhas or any other founder of the world's religions. None. Not one. But when we get to the Bible, when we get to the Messiah, over 300 Literally fulfilled to the minutest detail. God can be trusted. God can be trusted. In the first two chapters of Matthew, Matthew's hammering that point home. And of course, Matthew is a gospel to the Jews. It reveals Christ as king. And see what Matthew is doing? He's going... This is fulfillment. This is fulfillment. This is fulfillment. He's repeating it and he's repeating it and he's repeating it. So the Jews that rejected would see that this was the promised Messiah, that they could respond to this Messiah and understood that he could be trusted. He was the one. He was the one. And that's what we should do. We should look back and go, yes, that was fulfilled. It was fulfilled. He is God. He is true. He can be trusted. He is above all and beyond all, and He has stepped into all so that we can know Him. How good is that? We've only looked at a few of those prophecies. Like I said, there's over 300. Let me give you some other ones you can have a, you can have a look at in your own time. We don't have time to go through them. Here's a few more. It was prophesied that he would enter into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt. You'll find that in Zechariah, chapter 9. It was prophesied that he would be betrayed by a friend in Psalm 41. It was also prophesied that the betrayal would be for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11. It was prophesied that the money would be used to purchase the potter's fields, Zechariah 11. These are all things that happened. Prophesied, obviously, the Messiah would die, that sacrificial death, Daniel and Isaiah. Prophesied about that. Prophesied that he would die with criminals. Again, you'll find that in Isaiah. 
Obviously, it was prophesied that he would rise from the dead, and that was evidenced by the witnesses that saw him. It was prophesied that he would say certain words on the cross, that he would be mocked. People would gamble for his clothes. You'll find that in Psalm 22. Like I said, there's over 300. Go and look. Go and see. I don't know if you've seen the, the, the film. And for the life of me, I can't remember the name of it. So this isn't going to be a good illustration. <laughs> no, no, no. It was about the journalist that went and uh, he went to disprove. Somebody can help me out here. I'll talk about it enough and you'll get it. Um, basically, he was a journalist in America. Uh, Josh McDowell, is it? Yeah. No, I don't know. You haven't seen the film, obviously, then, though. Okay. It's a good, it's a good film. Case for Christ. Well done, that man. Right. Case for Christ. And basically, his wife became a Christian. This was the deal. So he was a journalist. And a, a quite a, a high-level one. I think Chicago Times or something like that. And um, he thought that his wife was going through a funny phase. That she, you know, had a little wobble. And again, this is the thing, you know, Christians come along, or people that aren't Christians come along and say, oh, it's just a crutch. You know, you're just doing that to make yourself feel better. So it's a crutch. You're weak, which is a nonsense. It's a nonsense. They don't understand it. But that's what he thought it was. So what he decided to do, he decided to go away and disprove Christianity because he was a, you know, a high journalist. He, he knew how to investigate. He knew how to put things together. He knew how to analyze the evidence, etc., etc., etc. So he determined in his heart that he would go away and he would go and look at Christianity. He would go and look at the claims of Christ. And primarily, the first thing he went for was the resurrection. He thought, if I can disprove the resurrection, I will destroy her faith. Now, he was absolutely bang on in that. Because the resurrection is pivotal. It's, it's the game changer. And he said... It's probably take me three days. So away he went. And he started to look at it, properly look at it. And he started to look at the events of the crucifixion. He started to look at all the stories people had come up with to try and explain the crucifixion. So there's all these theories that people come up with to explain away the crucifixion and the resurrection. They, they try and explain it away. Number one, they say that it was a mass hallucination. All these witnesses were, were, were just part of one mass group hallucination. Or they'll call, another one's called the swoon theory, that Christ just fainted upon the cross. They carried him away. They realized that he wasn't dead, got him out of the tomb, etc. He looked at all these things, and he found not one of them was plausible. Not one of them had any shred of evidence. And then he looked at the biblical account, and what he found was the more he tried to disprove it, honestly and openly, looking at the evidence, he could not disprove those claims. He looked at the prophecies and was amazed at how they had been fulfilled in such detail. And he started to think that this could not be a fabrication of man, that there must be something to this. Three days to disprove turned to a journey that led him to Christ to go on and be a great evangelist for Christ. And he's wrote, wrote books and again the film's been made. 
I'm glad you haven't seen it. We could show it in here once, and it's good. It is good. But that, you know, these things, that's what they should do. When we look at these prophecies and we get to Christmas and we remember the declaration of the promised Messiah, we don't want to just go through the nativity dryly. We want to remember that declaration. And as we do, it should thrill our hearts to know that God is in control, that God will never let go of control, and God will do what he says he will do because he has done it. He has proved himself time and time and time again. That he is God and he is overall and he is working. He is working. And our response to that should be one where we recognize his sovereignty. sovereignty. We fall down at his feet and say, God, thank you. I know you can be trusted. I know you're God. I thank you for the Messiah. And I thank you for those promises because I know, I know that the promises that are yet fulfilled will be fulfilled. That you're not done, that you're not finished, that you're coming back again. Rejoice, saints, at the declaration of the promised Messiah. Let's pray.